This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Please do be seated. And a very happy Good Friday to you. As human beings, you and I are all potentially part of the mob. Almost as terrifying a force as a tsunami can be the behaviour of a crowd. A crowd can be possessed by a will that is more than the wills of the individuals that compose it combined. A crowd can be gripped by fear or anger or resentment or even, if you see in Canada after their hockey team wins, the elation of a sports victory. It can stampede like frightened brumbies. It can lash out like a venomous snake. It can rumble with an ominous fury like like a volcano. And crowds are at their worst when they have a sense of moral outrage, when they feel that they are on the side of the right, and when they find an object or a scapegoat on which to vent their anger. At that moment, when we, when you and I are in a crowd, we give ourselves a leave pass to do things that we as individuals would probably never do. The lynch mob flings the noose over a branch in a field. The shop windows are smashed and the contents looted. Or perhaps the individual who has trespassed against our current tastes and customs is vilified, excluded, condemned and sacked. In Australia, we think of the famous example of Lindy Chamberlain. Do you remember her back in the 1980s? Vilified and condemned by the crowd for not reacting the way we thought she should to her baby Azaria's disappearance. To our shame, she was an innocent woman. But we shouldn't, of course, think that mobs only exist outside in the streets, rampaging through towns. Our media allows the expression of a mob violence without our ever having to leave our lounge chairs. The whipping up of indignation and outrage sells newspapers and garners clicks. That's why we read newspapers, to feel that kind of righteous anger. Political correctness gone mad, we say. How dare that judge only sentence them to 10 or 20 years or whatever it might be. And social media seems designed to feed the pylon of the crowd, doesn't it? There's no more modern pleasure than being able to hurl abuse from a self-righteous and probably anonymous height down on someone who has made themselves a target. Being part of a crowd is a powerful and self-righteous feeling. Crucify him, we say. Crucify her. Now, the death of Jesus is often portrayed as being a sort of top-down thing, that he was killed by the authorities. He was killed by the connivance and plotting of the religious leaders and the apathy of the political authorities. Pilate, we see, chillingly washes his hands and does the bidding of the council, even though he can't find fault with Jesus. It's corruption, isn't it? But we ourselves, not being those who plotted and those who looked the other way, might come to Good Friday 
absolving ourselves then, not identifying with the killers of Jesus at all. But Jesus is also the victim of the crowd, the crowd who received him only a week before with rejoicing as their triumphal king riding in procession. And when we picked up the story today in Matthew's Gospel, we find Pilate, the Roman governor, quite perplexed. He's been presented with a prisoner who won't speak to defend himself, put up on charges that just won't stick. Even his wife seems to be having these alarming and disturbing dreams, affirming Jesus' innocence and telling Pilate to be rid of any connection with Jesus. Well, Jesus, what had he done? Had he committed insurrection? No. Was he an assassin or a terrorist? Not at all. His crimes, if there were any, were ones that didn't interest Pilate. He claimed to be the king of the Jews, but he had no army and no sword. He spoke of tearing down the temple, but he never did anything like that. He didn't carry bombs. And so Pilate thinks that he will use the crowd against the chief priests and elders, thinking that they're operating out of envy. He thinks he'll turn the crowd against their leaders and using the custom, the custom that used to happen every Passover, to release to the crowd a prisoner, something the Romans would do as a sort of mark of goodwill, a little bit like presidential pardons at the end of a presidential term. So Pilate goes down to his jail and he realises he's got two prisoners. And as coincidence would have it, both of them are called Jesus. And he gives the crowd the choice to release one of the Jesuses. He's very clear that there are two different guys called Jesus. A relative of my wife's once in, went into a hospital to have a big toenail, an ingrown toenail operated on, and to her horror discovered that someone in the same hospital was having their leg amputated, and they had the same name. So she wrote in black texter, thick black texter, on both of her legs, right foot, big toenail. <laughs> To make sure. Well, Pilate is very clear. He's got two Jesuses, but they're very different. The first Jesus is Jesus Barabbas. His name means, Barabbas just means son of the father. Jesus, son of the father. And Matthew tells us he was a notorious prisoner. He's a man with a, with a huge rap sheet. He's got a reputation. We read in the other Gospels that he was an insurrectionist, a robber, and a killer To be honest, in our world's terms, he's a terrorist, right? He's a a fanatic and probably a psychopath or a combination. He's the nightmare that stalks our dreams, someone driven to commit terrible atrocities. He's guilty as sin, no doubt about it. No one disputes it. And then he's got the other Jesus. Now, this Jesus is the one they call the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. The accusations against him are very unclear and Pilate can't find anything. He can't find any fault with him at all. If anything, Jesus preached a message that was crazy but certainly harmless. He preached love for his enemies. He'd healed the sick and raised the dead. He's fed the hungry. When he was captured, he pointed out the obvious. Why have you come with a squad of soldiers to detain me when I'm not leading a rebellion? It's a clear choice, isn't it, for the innocent over the guilty. And yet, what do the crowds do? 
What do the crowds do? Well, they're pretty clear from the start that the guilty Jesus, Barabbas, and not the innocent man, is the one they want set free. They condemn to death the one who has done no wrong. Three times Pilate gives them the choice, and three times to his surprise, they choose to free Barabbas. Why? Well, Matthew tells us that the chief priests had been able to persuade the crowds, but how are they persuadable? What changed their minds remembering that they welcomed Jesus with cheers just days before? Was it that they used bribes or threats? Or was it the thought that Barabbas was a more loyal kinsman, a a more loyal countryman, an Israelite, someone who would bear their hopes and perhaps upset the Romans more? Had Had they convinced them that Jesus was a blasphemer and a traitor? Well, who can say? Their choice, for whatever reason, is simply perverse. But it's sadly familiar, isn't it, to we human beings? We know that perversity in us. As the hymn says, The murderer they save, the prince of life they slay. And when Pilate asks them, why, what evil has he done? They simply refuse to answer the question and cry out all the more, what has he done? Who cares what he's done? Let him be crucified. While Pilate washes his hands, the crowd gleefully accepts responsibility for his death. It doesn't matter. He's just human detritus. He's trash. Let's have him killed like a pack of sharks. They've scented blood. Once more, this is behavior we recognize, sadly, amongst us human beings. And sometimes it's behavior we've shared in too. But without them realizing it, the choice of the crowd to release the guilty Jesus and to condemn the innocent Jesus performed an extraordinary sign of what Jesus' death really means. The innocent one dies in the place of the guilty. Jesus Christ is killed so that Jesus Barabbas can go free and live. Jesus pays the penalty that Barabbas, the terrorist, deserved. The cross upon which Jesus died was the cross upon which Barabbas should have been crucified. The story of Barabbas, in other words, involves a great switch. And this great switch is a picture of an even greater switch. Because Jesus died on the cross once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to reconcile us to God. Jesus' death as an innocent victim was the death that we, the guilty, deserved. It was the sacrifice we needed. It was because of us that he died, and yet it was for us that he died, for all the wrongdoing that belongs to us, our rage and selfishness, our envy and our apathy, our lust and our greed, was placed upon his shoulders As Isaiah said 700 years before this, though we like sheep have gone astray, the Lord has placed on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. By his bruises, we are healed. And like Barabbas, though we are guilty, through Jesus, we can go free. Oh, we don't know what happens to Barabbas after this. 
It's an intriguing thought to speculate what the rest of his life was like. Did he resume his life of troublemaking, theft and terror? Did he return to his terrorist cell, the People's Front of Judea or the Judean People's Front or whatever it was? Or was he struck, that's Monty Python in case you missed it, or was he struck to the quick by what he witnessed that day, knowing that the execution squads had been prepared for him, the cross had been had been shaped for his body, the nails had been sharpened to go through his hands and feet. There was a major film made in the 1960s called Barabbas, speculating about what happened to Barabbas after this scene. It imagined that he was haunted all his life by his experience and sort of met with Christians, in fact, was, uh, was enslaved at one stage and with a Christian for 20 years and eventually himself died a Christian, crucified himself in the great persecution that was unleashed against the Christians in Rome in 70 AD by, by the Emperor Nero. Ah, but that's all speculation. We don't know what happened to this man, Barabbas. He disappears into history. The question of what happened next to him is really a question that this story asks of you and me. For just like Barabbas, with Jesus, we've experienced that great switch. His life has been traded for mine. The cross of Jesus should have been my cross, and yet he willingly paid the price for me. He took the place that was mine. And where does knowing that lead me? It cannot result in apathy, can it? On the contrary, it can only lead me day by day to my knees in gratitude, knowing how blessed I am. It leads me to follow the way of Jesus with my own heart, with all my heart, and to want others to know about him. It's very similar to the story of what happened to Maximilian Kolbe, or what Maximilian Kolbe, the Polish priest, did during the Second World War. Maximilian Kolbe, Father Kolbe, was a Polish priest. He was imprisoned in Auschwitz uh, in the 1940s because, among other things, he had protected thousands of his Jewish neighbours. One day, a prisoner escaped from the camp. And so in payback, the deputy commandant, a man called Karl Fritsch, ordered that ten prisoners died by starvation, be put in a bunker and be left there to starve. One of those chosen was Franiszek Gawanaszek. When Father Kolbe heard this man, Franiszek Gawanaszek, cry out, my wife and my children, Gawanaszek had two children and a wife, he volunteered to switch places with him. This offer was accepted by the Nazis. They did not care. They just said, we need 10 to place in place for the one who escaped. And Colby went to his death in the bunker, not eventually starving to death, but the last one standing, the Nazis injected him with carbolic acid and he died. What happened to Gawanaszek? Like Barabbas, a man who experienced a great switch, Well, he lived until the 1990s when he was 95 years old. He once said, so long as I have breath in my lungs, I would consider it my duty to tell people about the heroic act of love by Maximilian Kolbe. I want to give thanks for the gift of life. The story of Barabbas, the story of the two Jesuses, tells us that we can receive the same gift. We have one who has willingly willingly traded place for us. 
offering his life as a substitute for us, giving us that great switch that we so sorely needed, bringing us to peace with God where we could not make peace with him on our own. And so what follows? Well, surely, like Gawanachek, knowing this must make life forever different. If you've come here today, drawn this Good Friday to sit at the foot of the cross, then do not leave this morning unmoved or unchanged. If you discover in Jesus' death that you've been switched, then be like Gawanishek, but even more. And if you want to hear more about the great switch, about what this Jesus not Jesus Barabbas, but Jesus, the one called Messiah, experienced, then do sign up using our Connect card. I'll explain a little bit more about them in the notices. To our Meals with Jesus course, which is coming up, or to our Alpha course, where you can discover more about faith and the meaning of life. But having had that great switch, we must surely now live lives utterly transformed by thanksgiving for the new gift, the gift of new life we have in Jesus, the one called the Messiah. If we know that we, what we now have, we must want to share the heroic act of love by that Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.